Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Today's guest is Greg Dixon, the co-founder and CEO of Voltus. Voltus is a demand response solution that can deliver substantial electricity bill savings and cash earnings that drive energy costs down. They work with big commercial and industrial partners to take their unused power capacity and sell it back to the grid during periods of peak demand, which is good for the grid because it gets them much needed capacity when they need it the most and good for these customers because it gets them significant cost savings. I thought that this discussion was super interesting because Greg is a longtime energy entrepreneur and executive, as well as specifically a leader in demand response, both during his time at Voltus and prior to that while he was at Enernoc. And we had a lot to talk about in terms of the climate fight, how demand response fits into the climate fight, how that impact is measured day in and day out when you're building a company like Voltus. And also just the difficult choices that come with trying to make a living and also trying to do the best thing for the planet. But Greg said it best when he said when he's gauging whether he's making the right choice or not, he just needs to ask himself what message it sends his kids. I learned a lot from this episode, and I hope you do as well. Greg Dixon, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for coming. Your reputation precedes you. Uh Uh-oh. Well, we share a friend in common. My head of finance at Runkeeper is your head of finance at Voltus, and he's also a very good friend, so Doug. Good guy. Yeah, he talks you up quite a bit, so we'll see if you live up to the hype. Okay. I'm not just excited because we have a friend in common. I'm also excited because you are a longtime energy guy, and you've been operating at a pretty high strategic level. You've had a, a fair bit of success with Enernoc and now with Voltus, and Energy is something I'm still trying to unpack because on the one hand, it's a big driver of emissions. And so clean energy is a big way to help reduce those emissions. But a lot of the people I talk to in energy seem like they certainly aren't necessarily coming at it from an environmentalist perspective. It's more an industry and a business that just happens to touch on this area of carbon. So anyways, I feel like there's a lot to talk about. No doubt. No doubt. And it's a perfect time to talk about it. Why is that? Well, energy is essential to everything we do and more and more, whether it's the penetration of air conditioning more and more in third world countries that's driving electricity demand, or it's the fact that we're constantly plugged into the internet, which requires massive data farms to serve the bits and the digital information that we consume, energy and the reliability, resilient energy, cost-effective energy is becoming more and more important to everything. Yet it's easier and easier to take for granted what produces that energy. We're constantly on the go. We are bombarded with things that take our attention. And so it's easy to take for granted the energy that's underpinning everything. Yet, when it isn't there, we feel it very painfully. It's like slack. 
Yeah, I don't know what we would do without Slack. <laughs> At Voltus. <laughs> Although I, if I had to choose one, I think energy is more important. No doubt, no doubt. So there's a lot of thorny topics we could jump into, but before we get too far, what is Voltus? Voltus is a provider of demand response technology and services for commercial and industrial customers. What is demand response? Demand response is making use of the operational flexibility or assets behind a meter at, in our case, a commercial or industrial facility to satisfy some need of an energy market. In a practical sense, what that means is asking customers, these commercial and industrial customers, to reduce their consumption of electricity when the grid needs them to. In a more traditional model, the grid would turn on a peaking power plant, for instance, that sits idle 99% of the hours of the year. And when it turns on, it's coal, right? Typically natural gas, actually. Ah. Simple cycle natural gas units are typically providing the peak power on the grid. But as I mentioned, they're sitting idle 99% of the time. And that's because the top 10 percentage points of electricity demand last less than 1% of the hours of the year. So when it's really hot out in the summer, typically in the afternoon, the sun is shining, our air conditioners are cranked up, business is in full effect, we have these peaks that last for a very short period of time. And because of the physics of electricity, you have to supply electricity when it is demanded in real time. And the traditional model is, of course, to run these peaking power plants to satisfy that peak demand. What demand response is, is we basically employ a networking model where we curtail small amounts of electricity across thousands and thousands of facilities to act as a virtual power plant. These are known as megawatts, not megawatts of power. With technology, we can measure that power reduction in real time very precisely and do it in aggregate, giving a grid operator a different tool than turning on a power plant. They simply need to reduce load by using our platform. The source of that excess capacity is the end customers themselves? That's right. So let me give you some examples. Air conditioning load, or what we would call thermal loads, have thermal inertia. Think of an ice rink. Well, you freeze that ice. If you turn off the chiller, typically an ammonia-based chiller that creates that frozen water, that ice is going to remain frozen for some period of time. It has thermal inertia. And that's true with a cold storage facility. So if you let that ice thaw a little bit, maybe it takes four hours for it to thaw a little. Now, during that four hours, you're consuming less electricity. So we can take the thermal inertia that exists in that ice rink or in a cold storage facility or even in an office building like we're in now. We've conditioned this space. We've cooled this air. Feels very conditioned. Yeah, right? We're sitting here in short sleeves and it feels maybe a little too cool. Thank you. Since this is audio, you're not calling out that I'm wearing shorts. I appreciate that. (laughs) We're wearing nothing. Yeah, we're taking video as well. And so there's a tremendous amount of thermal inertia in these facilities. So those are thermal loads. Now, if you're talking about manufacturing, manufacturers produce product that goes into inventory typically. And they'll keep a certain amount of inventory. Maybe it's a day, maybe it's two weeks, maybe it's 30 days of inventory of their product to fulfill orders. So when we ask them to curtail production, that's a form of demand response. They fulfill their orders from inventory and they make use of their operational flexibility to deliver a product to the grid that the grid pays them for. Got it. And so if I'm hearing right, and I guess caveat, caveat is that I, and by the way, 
a lot of our listeners too don't know anything about this stuff. So I'm just going to put that out there now. But you've got the grid or the generation entity on one side, the utility. And then on the other side, you've got these customers that are that tend to be heavier energy consumers, but that also means that when they have breaks, they have heavier excess capacity to work with. And you're essentially the middleman or woman that is brokering that transaction to get that excess capacity to the grid that gives them more buffer than they would otherwise have access to. You're spot on. It's that simple. Am I hired? If you need a job, absolutely. We'd love to have you on the team. We're growing very quickly. I've heard a lot of good things from Doug about you. So yes, you're hired. Wherever Doug goes is where I want to be. <laughs> it's always a fun place to be. Yeah. And so from a mechanic standpoint, is that actually delivered inside the walls of the utility? Is the utility in control of that and you're giving them tools or are you actually doing this somewhere in between the utility and the end customer? Like, what are the mechanics of it? How does it work? It's pretty simple. It's really no different than any kind of market that's matching supply and demand in the information technology, the software, the hardware that goes into extracting data, presenting data, and providing the tools to make choices that a utility or a grid operator might need where they would otherwise turn on a power plant, otherwise known as dispatching. So the way that the grid works is there's typically a control room and the resources, typically generation, is scheduled day ahead, also in real time, and utilities and grid operators are sending signals to those resources to turn on or to turn up their power production. We provide them the same type of technology that they would use to dispatch or turn on a gas-fired peaker. They see our virtual power plant no differently. They see its capability in real time. And like clicking a button to dispatch a gas-fired power plant, they do the same to dispatch our virtual power plant. Our technology then communicates with those end-use loads to reduce that power consumption, which we aggregate, calculate in real time, and show to the utility or grid operator that we're actually delivering what they need. Got it. And so is there a, a DIY option for these utilities? Are there some that do it themselves and some that work with you guys? Or what aspect are you doing that they can't do on their own? I like to say that every utility that we've ever worked with has a do-it-yourself option as well. In fact, I can't think of a utility that doesn't have their own demand response program that we've worked with to deliver an additional demand response program. So it's not an either-or in a lot of situations, or in probably every situation. Utilities have the ability to effectively do demand response on their own, but in order to maximize the value of demand response, they really need third parties like us. I mean, it's a weird analogy to think of, but I'm an analogy thinker. And when I was running a consumer software company, we had a whole big technical team in-house, but we still work with third-party consulting firms that we would pull in on a project basis for projects that they were either better equipped to do or for an extension of bandwidth or things that we could kind of carve out cleanly that they could go and do without impacting our core business. Is it similar? It's very similar. Utilities are uniquely capable of addressing certain customer needs. And then Oddly enough, they're hamstrung in other ways of being entrepreneurial and innovative in bringing a complete solution to very sophisticated customers. And you've been in demand response a long time. I mean, Enernoc was one of the pioneers. So you mentioned to me when we were chatting a bit before this interview that in many ways, Voltus is a continuation of the work that you did for so long at Enernoc. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. So the work that was done at Enernoc was amazing. And 
the team of folks, the talent in that organization, the innovation that occurred was, was tremendous. Along the way, as is true in all aspects of the energy industry, we ran into some real regulatory headwinds. And in the most extreme case, the big kind of earth-ending asteroid of the industry was known as FERC 745, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission's Order 745, which in essence was an order that said the megawatts of demand response should be valued exactly the same as a megawatt of traditional power plant production. So the FERC created this order and then an organization that represents the generation community, what's known as EPSA, Electric Power Supplier Association, they sued FERC. And to everybody's shock, including EPSA's, frankly, they won. And what that did was it actually vacated FERC's jurisdiction to invoke demand response that sits behind a retail meter into these wholesale markets that represented the vast majority of revenue for Enernoc and all demand response companies. And so that necessitated a pivot away from demand response in many ways by Enernoc. What year was that? That was in, so the order, the FERC order 745 came out in 2011. It was contested in 2013. It was overturned by the DC Circuit Court of Appeals. And on the heels of that, these wholesale markets that represented the majority of revenue for demand response companies, including Enernoc, these wholesale markets began ripping demand response out of the market. We contested that. We took the case to the Supreme Court of the United States. I actually led that effort. It was the last thing I did at Enernoc. We put the case together. We hired the most experienced and frankly, most expensive attorney in Washington, D.C., Sidley Austin, and an amazing, amazing Supreme Court trial attorney, Carter Phillips, to lead our case. In early 2016, after a couple of years of working hard on that, the Supreme Court ruled on FERC 745, and it overturned the lower court's decision. At that time, the demand response industry- So that was basically a battle that wasn't an Enernoc battle. That was a battle that you were doing with your Enernoc hat on, but on behalf of all the demand response world. That's right. And what a lot of people don't understand- collaboration? Were there other companies in the demand response world that were standing shoulder to shoulder, or were you guys on your own? No. There weren't. There were associations for demand response that that filed petitions in support of that Supreme Court case, but we were really on our own. And the reason for that is because wholesale markets began ripping demand response out of their markets. And it was the death knell of the industry, frankly. And most demand response companies either went out of business, they sold to larger companies, or were in various states of shamble because of the financial outcome of this court decision. And in fact, Enernoc ended up selling to Enel for really financial reasons. It was looking at having to pay a $120 million note that was coming due without a clear path to profitability. So this earth-ending asteroid of the 745 regulatory process was very challenging for the industry. And really the last man standing, if you will, was Enernoc. And just one point of clarification and then get into the fast forward that you were just going to do. But the clarification is just that the rest of the demand response industry, they weren't shoulder to shoulder with you, but it wasn't because they weren't united in spirit. It was because the industry got decimated and, and as one of the biggest or the biggest even if you guys took a beating, you still had the resources to fight the legal battle where others were in even worse shape and did not. That's correct. And furthermore, it is safe to say that most of these providers of demand response didn't believe we could win at the Supreme Court. 
In fact, there were many people, most people within the walls of Enernoch that didn't believe we would actually get our day in court at the Supreme Court. And so we invested and we got our day in court. And in early 2016, the Supreme Court ruled and we won. Now, at that time, A, the industry was decimated. Most of the competitive playing field had been wiped clean. And B, we now had demand response vindicated, forevermore cemented within the jurisdiction of FERC to invoke into wholesale markets. So on the heels of that, it became clear like, geez, we got to get the band back together and reinvigorate innovation and demand response. Because through that process, Enernoc was really still in the beginning innings of developing this industry. There was a lot more work to be done. And there were a lot of people really passionate about unlocking the virtues, the value of demand response. So on the heels of that Supreme Court verdict in July of 2016, we launched Voltus. Got it. And so is it really just a straight continuation of the work you're doing pre-pivot at Enernoc, or are there any key differences to the model? Sure. So the simple answer to that is it's a lot of the same. It's taking the lessons that we learned and continuous improvement on the product that works so well in the market. It was focusing exclusively on demand response and being the absolute best in the world at delivering a demand response platform to these commercial and industrial customers. And it was extending the technology platform in recognition of how the market had evolved in its need for demand response resources. And what I mean by that is, as an example, as intermittent renewable energy has grown so rapidly, wind and solar, the need for a balancing resource, i.e. demand response, has grown tremendously. The challenge with intermittent renewables is that, well, they're intermittent. The sun doesn't always shine, the wind doesn't always blow, and like any weather forecast, there's error in that forecast. So as these resources have become more prevalent, they're also harder to predict in terms of what they're gonna deliver in terms of energy. So demand response offers this very unique ramping characteristic for these resources. That's the ideal dancing partner for solar and wind. But those resources, demand response, for ramping purposes are needed very rapidly and often in unexpected ways, but only for short durations. That's a very different paradigm than our father's demand response, if you will. 10 years ago, demand response was primarily used to prevent blackouts and as an emergency-only resource. Today, the much more prevalent use of demand response and where the real value is, is deploying demand response very quickly, 10 minutes or less, one second or less, but only for 15, maybe 30 minutes at a time to help balance the grid in real time. So 10 years ago, demand response might have been needed to prevent a blackout. You got a two-hour advance notice the need to curtail that power could last from four to eight hours. Now you need those resources very quickly, but for short durations. And are you just pulling whatever energy type is available from these customers or are there specific ones that you work with or favor? We serve about 30 different vertical markets across the commercial and industrial categories. So everything from supermarkets to hotels, to steel plants, chemical plants, widget manufacturers, you name it, office buildings every facility has demand response potential. And we manage all of that in real time. So our technology understands in real time, any time of the day, what capability that facility has to deliver its demand response to an energy market. And so that's the power of the technology, the software, the platform, understanding what happens behind the meter, 
what that facility is capable of and what the energy market needs at any point in time. Do you distinguish between clean energy and dirty energy? That's a great question. We don't. <sighs> well, like 20 minutes in before I got a great question. <laughs> yeah, I got to do better. We don't. By its very nature, demand response, it's the cleanest energy. The kilowatt hour never used is the cleanest, obviously. The kilowatt never built is the cleanest capacity. So by its very nature, it is clean. We don't distinguish because our business is about delivering cash to these customers to monetize that operational flexibility. We don't approach customers and say, do the right thing by Mother Earth. Because the fact of the matter is, as many customers as not don't care. And that's really a reflection of the political views of the electorate, really. But I guess by extension then, Voltus doesn't care. No, not at all. We're very mission-driven. Our team cares deeply about sustainability. We built this business for that purpose. But that doesn't mean we have to shove it down our customers' throats. So we do well by doing good, and we love that aspect of our business. Simultaneously, we know that the lowest common denominator, what everybody can agree on, is a good bargain, a good economic decision. So when we approach our customers, it's about the cash, less energy, more cash. That's our motto. Everybody can agree to that. Now, it just so happens that there are tremendous sustainability benefits from demand response. You might like that. You might not care. But when we approach customers, we're indifferent. Now, by unlocking demand response and all of its virtues, we can feel great about the sustainability benefits. But that's really for our team and not something that we push on our customers. Uh-huh. And so I think when the costs line up that doing good means doing well from a dollars and cents standpoint, I think that's great and that totally makes sense. But aren't there situations where the right answer, if you're just looking from a cost and profitability standpoint, is not actually the cleanest one available? I'm not sure how to answer that. Maybe you could tease that out a little bit more. Yeah. So you said that the team's driven by and motivated by sustainability, but you're running a business, you have investors, you have a fiduciary responsibility to maximize profit. And so if you don't distinguish between clean energy and dirty energy, then the most profitable one is the one presumably that's going to win the most profitable for you and the most profitable for your customer. And what happens when the most profitable one is not actually the one that is doing good? Well, frankly, we wouldn't be in this industry if two things didn't exist. One, that it's always the cleanest decision. The cleanest decision to deliver on peak capacity, which is what demand response is. It's served when the grid needs it most, when it's peaking, or it needs a balancing resource. By its very nature, it's clean. So that ticks the box on our mission. But that's not the only mission. Doing well by doing good means that we are capitalists, but we also care about sustainability. We believe they go hand in glove. There's never actually a situation where we are delivering against our sustainability mission, where it's not A, the most sustainable choice, and B, the most economical choice. The cheapest form of Energy is energy efficiency. In the United States, on average, it costs two to three cents a kilowatt hour, by far the cheapest form of energy. And that's true for demand response capacity. So we operate in a business model that allows us to do both simultaneously in every situation. Okay. Well, I'd love to dig into that a bit more. But before we do, I'd love to just take a few steps back and look at climate change on a whole just so we can calibrate, because I want to share how I think about it, but I also want to understand how you think about it. And then let's come back around and talk about Voltas, if that's okay. So, I mean, to me, I see what seems like an existential crisis that threatens the future of life on this planet. 
and I see the carbon budget and how we have a finite amount of time and how every day that we are falling further and further behind means a not only a steeper and steeper hill to climb out of, but more dire effects like droughts and extreme weather and wildfires and forced migration of hundreds of millions of people and all these things that are on the horizon in the decades to come, essentially no matter what we do at this point, because the carbon that's already up in the atmosphere takes hundreds of years to dissipate, meaning even if we drastically reduce net new emissions, it's still on top of all the carbon that's already there. So the next several decades are set pretty much no matter what we do. So let me just stop there. Can you weigh in? Do you agree, disagree? What's your take on that? Yeah, I agree with you. We've set in motion kind of like the thermal inertia I was referring to earlier, we've set in motion the inertia of atmospheric carbonization. And it's a serious problem, as you mentioned. Right is right. We should be making the right decisions now, knowing that. And so whether we have an impact 10 years or 20 years or 30 years from now, we know what the problem is and we need to be doing everything we can to make a potentially awful situation better. And if that's all we do is we reduce the catastrophic impacts, well, that's better than having a worse situation. And there's no judgment one way or another, but I'm just trying to understand how much is that a driver, if at all, for the work that you're doing day to day? It's everything. Fact of the matter is, for me personally, and I can speak for the team as well, we care deeply about this stuff personally. I want to leave the world a better place for my family, my friends, and for all humanity. And I have the ability to make good decisions to do that. I think that that is, uh, that's in the job description of being a human being. I'm deeply committed to it. I know my team is deeply committed to it for all of the right reasons. And that is one of the reasons why we started Voltus. We also started Voltus because we're capitalists and we believe in capitalism and the power of capitalism to solve some of these problems. Again, we think it goes hand in glove. We think that the solutions that are going to have the biggest positive impact on climate change are the ones that make economic sense to the masses. Because the fact of the matter is, something like 50% of Americans don't actually believe that we're creating the problem of global warming. Well, you and I can yell at those people and tell them they're wrong, and they will not change their stripes whatsoever. But if I give them a better bargain, if I give them an opportunity to buy electricity less expensively or to make a better economic decision, they're going to love that. They might not know or care that it also has sustainability benefits, and I don't need them to care, and I certainly don't need to wave it in their face. But we can take advantage of the power of capitalism to solve these problems. And so I think that's great that you said it's everything and that the team cares so much about the mission. So, I mean, I have a sense of what success looks like from a financial standpoint. What does success look like from a non-financial standpoint in terms of that mission that's everything? 320,000 megawatts of demand response deployed worldwide. I mean, I'm not a megawatt expert, so what does that mean? So we think of demand response as a resource that's largely defined by its ability to deliver capacity in the form of a virtual power plant, these megawatts, on peak or when peak demand happens. As an example, in the United States, we have a peak demand of about 800,000 megawatts 
Demand response can deliver about 10% of that. So going back to what I had said before, 10 percentage points of all peak demand lasts less than 1% of the hours of the year. That 10%, or in this case, 80,000 megawatts of the 800,000 megawatts of peak demand in the United States should be delivered through demand response. We know that. We know the capability of demand response. Now, the United States also consumes about 25% of the world's electricity. So you do the math, the world peak demand is 3,200 gigawatts or 3.2 million megawatts. 10% of that is the 320,000 megawatts that demand response can deliver. That displaces the need to build 320,000 megawatts of primarily fossil fuel generation, whether it's coal or it's gas or traditional power supply that would typically provide that peak demand. And what you're saying is that even though you don't distinguish between clean and dirty, you are distinguishing between net new and existing and underutilized. That's right. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense to me. Yeah. And I guess that 320 thousand megawatts is that the right That's yeah right. so what does that mean from a carbon standpoint do you know that math if you don't it's okay i don't i do the environmental impact delivered from three hundred twenty thousand megawatts of demand response relative to what we would traditionally do is staggering three hundred twenty thousand megawatts would require somewhere between 300 and 700 coal plants and the land that it would take to build those plants would be the size of the state of Connecticut. Furthermore, the economic benefits of 320,000 megawatts of demand response is about $200 billion a year of savings to ratepayers globally. And that's $50 billion a year just in the United States. So not only do we get all of the environmental benefits of not having to build these power plants, not having to site them and clear land and build gas pipelines and dig coal mines and the associated damage, but we deliver a huge economic impact by eliminating the need for those power plants. I think that definitely helps put things in perspective. And I get what you're saying, how if successful, it's not going to get us all the way there, but it can have a, a sizable impact on the problem. What would the skeptics say? The skeptics have one argument, and it's a legal or regulatory argument, and it's what FERC ruled on and the Supreme Court ruled on. The FERC Order 745 case was contested on jurisdictional grounds. The fact of the matter is, demand response has been called the killer app of the smart grid for all of the reasons we've been talking about. You can't refute its benefits, whether it's economic or sustainability or resilience and reliability of the grid. It has tremendous benefits across the board. Those that seek to not unlock the full potential of demand response are ones that don't benefit from unlocking it. And that tends to be the traditional generation supply side of the equation. Demand response suppresses market prices. Demand response lowers capacity prices, lowers energy prices on peak. And of course, that takes profit away from traditional generators. So you just gave me the pitch for demand response. So those traditional generators are the skeptics, but what do they say? They say that demand response should not be allowed in these wholesale markets because it sits behind a retail meter and that's the state's jurisdiction. 
Got it. So it's more like a, it's not a demand response is bad. It's more like catching somebody on a technicality, basically. It's like the taxi industry saying we don't like Uber. But the consumers saying, hey, we actually love Uber. Exactly. Yeah. So typically we save Twitter questions for the end, but since I saw that we got one that looked pretty relevant, I'd love to just ask it before we move on from this topic, since I think it's a good one. And that is, let's see, it's from at Jake Douglas. And he said, most demand response programs and companies that he's learned about so far are targeting consumers. He'd like to hear how DR for C&I customers, yeah, commercial and industrial customers, I don't know the lingo, compares logistically the scale of opportunities, et cetera. How's it different than consumer? Yeah, sure. So what's interesting about that question is that the predominant source of demand response is actually C&I, commercial and industrial. Now I know, C&I. Sure, sure. You're in the know. You're an insider now. The residential demand response is probably better known by the average citizen because we're now using more and more smart thermostats, for example. So I have nests in my home. I'm sure you have a smart thermostat. Matt Rogers, one of the co-founders of Nest, came on as a guest. Awesome. So a lot of consumers are learning, whether they know about the concept of demand response or not, they're learning about demand response by having these devices in their homes and the ability to choose to be part of this new paradigm. In fact, all of my nests are part of the Rush Hour Rewards Program. And so Nest, which has done an amazing job of basically providing an Apple-esque product for regulating the temperature in your home, has also integrated these types of services that energy markets value. So consumers are learning about the concept of demand response, whether they know it or not, because they're signing up to something called the Rush Hour Rewards Program that incentivizes them to be part of the solution. But the fact of the matter is, the predominance of demand response really exists in the CNI industry. And then from an economic standpoint, you talked about the overall cost savings potential, but what about for a specific client? Like, what's the pitch to one of these big CNI customers? What's interesting is that the energy industry has transformed tremendously over the past 20 years. 20 years ago, the demand portion of an electricity bill might have represented 10% of that bill, whereas the energy portion of the bill was 90%. And without going into the technical details, think of it this way. Energy are kilowatt hours, and demand is the kilowatt or the peak of what your power consumption might be. So in the middle of the day when you're running your air conditioner at home, you're consuming power on peak, and that's measured in kilowatts. But the kilowatt hours are measured across the day, every hour, how many of those units you consume. In the United States, in fact, over the past 20 years, we've consumed fewer kilowatt hours for the production of GDP. So we're actually getting more and more efficient as a country, as a society, and that's true globally. We're consuming fewer kilowatt hours to produce a unit of GDP, but our peaks are growing. So we're seeing these extreme weather events that produce longer and more extreme heat waves. We're using more air conditioning. We have more plug load. All of those things contribute to higher peak demand. Now, today, our demand portion of our bill is 30%, 40% in Ontario, and in many cases, 60% of our bill is driven by our consumption on peak, which is a perfect fit for demand response. When we get a customer involved in demand response, for very few hours of the year, we can reduce that 30, 40% of their bill by half. That's a huge savings. And so for a large industrial, a large commercial customer, 
five, 10, 20% savings on their bill can result through making no investment. They don't spend money to get involved in a demand response program. They have to do very little, maybe 20, 40 hours of actual response per year. That's an incredible economic return for every one of these customers. Coming back around, so when I was running a company for 10 years, I just didn't have the cycles to think about much else besides that. I was very one track. So some of the big picture bird's eye view thinking that I get to do now, I just didn't have the cycles to do then. You mentioned that climate change is everything in terms of a motivator for you and for the team. And you're taking on what sounds like a meaningful slice of that with the work that you're doing. How much do you think about the rest of the pie? Is that something that you find yourself thinking about a lot in terms of collectively how we get ourselves out of this problem in more ways than just the Voltus piece? Sure. Personally, I do. I have an electric car. I have Nest thermostats. I live my values in every way. But demand response is such a passion and there's so much more to do. I've taken the approach of focusing all of my energy on that one concept because I know I can have a meaningful impact. At times when I try to think about the broader implications of all that we do, it actually can be depressing sometimes, right? Because it's daunting. It's a really daunting challenge when you think of all that needs to be done to make a meaningful impact. And so I like to actually keep my nose to the grindstone on demand response, knowing that I'm going to have a big impact. Yeah, I mean, I wrestle with that one personally because I think the depressing piece is when you look at the big picture and the math and how fucked we are. And we check the box on the thing that I can say that. So then... I guess to tunnel vision on your piece and do the best you can. I wish I could get there, honestly, because if I could get there, I mean, it's certainly a hard place to be, but I think it's an easier place to be from a depression standpoint, because you're just an optimist every day trying to make your piece reach its fullest extent possible, right? But I have gotten sucked into the vortex, I guess, of looking at the big picture. And so I don't want to put blinders on and I don't really know what to do about that. Because I think that at the end of the day, If all you do is look at it, but you're not actually taking on any big piece, well, then it's an academic exercise and you're not actually helping. But if you take on a piece that is, in the grand scheme of things, not going to make a big enough dent to collectively help us get out of this jam, well, then anyways, I'm rambling. But this journey is a kind of a quest to figure that out. And one of the ways I'm doing so is talking to people in the trenches like you. So it's like sitting on a shrinks couch. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I want to address that because I found a way to keep myself motivated. Show me the light. Show me the light, Greg. I'm a dad and my kids mean everything to me. And I want to leave the world a better place for them. It's very meaningful. I'm very, very connected to that. And it's really important that I teach them about these things, about sustainability, about being a really productive and good citizen. And so at times when you and I might think, wow, you know, we're fucked. (laughs) I use simple analogies like pick your sport, basketball, you're in the fourth quarter, you're down by 20. Do you give up? The likelihood that you're going to win is slim to none, but of course you don't. You bring on the third stringer so that your first stringers don't get hurt for the, for the real game. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. I don't play. I don't play. I don't play NBA style basketball. You know, you leave it all on the field. That's the example you set for your children. And you know what? We may just win. So I filter all of the decisions that I make in this context through how would I explain it to my kids? How would I explain my decision making? What I focus on to my kids. That prevents me from making bad decisions. 
and it prevents me from inaction because you can easily convince yourself that we're fucked and nothing I do is going to help. But that's definitely not what you would say to your kids. It's a good point. And honestly, the way I'm approaching it is that whether we're fucked or not, I don't actually know, but I know that, I mean, to use your sports analogy, I'm going to leave it all on the field. And so I'm not going to get spun up in circles debating that. And I'm just going to do everything in my power to give us our best possible chance to not be. And at the end of the day, that's the best I can do. And if we all die a slow, painful, gory death, well, then at least I left it all on the field and did the best I could in the short time I was here. Right. Right. Agreed. Woohoo. That is motivating and mobilizing. So uh, my last question, I think we spent more time on demand response and Voltus than I usually do with company founders, but I actually think that's good because honestly, I just knew less about this area and I think it's an important one. So, and hopefully for our listeners that find themselves in a similar camp that, that this was a worthy exercise that we just went through. It was for me. Thank you. If you had a big pot of money, $100 billion, let's say, I just made up a number, but it's the one I've been using. So I'll stay consistent. You could allocate it towards anything to maximize its impact on climate change. Where would it go? How would you allocate it? It's simple. I would hire as many people in the industries that are becoming obsolete in energy, and I would employ them in industries like mine in demand response. So I'm a big believer that it's important that we make really good decisions to make the best use of natural resources, and we employ innovations like demand response, but they have impact in other areas that we have relied upon for decades like coal. And so demand response impacts coal in a negative way. That's not okay. We want to take those workers that suffer in coal mines, and we want to reemploy them in industries like demand response and give them career opportunities that are better and brighter for them. So if I had $100 billion, I'd pull all those folks out of coal mines. I'd pull them onto the Powder River Basin, and I would give them jobs that are better for them. Are the skills transferable? Absolutely, they're human beings that are smart and want to feed their families. And that's meaningful to them. And if we can give them a better opportunity, I'm absolutely certain they'd want that opportunity. And Greg, for anyone out there who's listening, I know there's a bunch of them who care about climate change and they're trying to just kind of, they're kind of going through what you and I were just discussing. It's like they're overwhelmed by the scale of the problem. They don't really understand it and they want to help, but they don't know how or where to start. I mean, speak to them for a moment. What advice do you have for them? Well, I think it just starts with personal decision-making. And I think the most helpful way to think about it is, how do you explain the decisions that you make to your kids? We see the impact of climate change all around us in a negative way if we open our eyes. And we need to act locally. And if people act locally, it will have a global impact. And it's really just practical things. President Obama was panned for saying, hey, if he could do one thing relating to global warming, it was something to the effect of I'd have people properly inflate their car tires. That's really important, it turns out. (laughs) Jimmy Carter, wear your sweater. Wear your sweater. Like These are practical things that have really big global impacts that you can do right now. And you don't have to be a tree hugger to do it. You talked about wanting to employ the coal miners as a longer term vision. In the short term, I know you are doing a bunch of hiring. Are there any specific roles you want to call out or or someplace you want to send people that maybe get inspired listening to the episode and want to learn more about the company? Visit our website, voltus.co. We are hiring across the board. That includes everything from software engineers to 
site techs that install our equipment at customer locations, salespeople, folks in our back office. Our company is exploding in growth. And so we need talented people who are passionate about making an impact. And I think you mentioned you're fully distributed at this point, right? No official office? Yeah, by design, we're virtual. So when people see job postings on your website, can they apply from any geography? Yeah, we have people working in Australia, China, Nepal, the UK, Canada, all over the US. I feel like we could do another whole episode just on that because that probably keeps a lot of people off of planes and, and opens up labor opportunities in a more equitable way wherever you are, not just in the major cities. We do our best to live the values. Anything I didn't ask or any parting words for listeners? asked you a lot. Jeez, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I should have prepared for that one. Any parting words? Jeez. That's the hardest question you got in the whole episode, then I was too easy on you. Yeah, wow. I should have been better prepared for that. It's terrible. Eat your Wheaties. You already gave parting words a few times, so we'll let you off the hook this time. But Greg, thanks so much. You've been a great guest. You've been a good sport, and it's awesome what you're doing. Thank you very much. Thank you. Best of luck to you. Take care. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And... Before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.